Hey, it's Vadim. If you remember many moons ago on this podcast, they used to talk about downloading my free ebook, which was called How to Record Your Band. I've made some changes to it and rebranded it. I, I've gotten some feedback on it over the many months it's been out, and I've kind of shortened it up a little bit. I've added some figures and some information and removed some information, and it's now called Digital Recording Basics. And it's been rebranded under the DIY Recording Guys brand, which just made more sense because it's more in line with what we're trying to do on this podcast than with what I'm trying to do with my studio stuff. So long story short, you can download that ebook now, the new version, still at the same link as it was before. So the URL is howtorecordyourband.com. So you go to that URL put in your name and your email, you get the download link, and then you'll get a couple of bonus emails on some specific gear recommendations that Ben and I have batted around and and think are good for for getting started with this stuff. So if you already have it, uh, you're already on the email list. I haven't been sending a bunch of emails, but I'm planning on picking that back up. So don't be surprised if you start seeing emails from um, DIY recording guys but feel free to sign up again and download the uh, the newest version of the book. Again, that's uh, the URL is howtorecordyourband.com. Check that out. Our guest on the podcast today is Brandon Tomei of DIY Sound Library. Brandon is a multi-instrumentalist. He's in a couple of different bands and has a solo project. His solo project is called Names Are Violent. His main band is Good Friend Electric, and he's also working on another project called Not Gary. Uh, He is somebody who's worn a lot of different hats in the DIY recording process and has a lot of great experience to draw on. We invited him on specifically to talk about vocal production. It was a really fun discussion. It's always good to hear other people's work processes and perspectives. We talked about how to come up with vocal melodies, how to arrange vocal harmonies, different ideas for doing that, where to fit vocals spatially in the mix. We talk about strategies for recording vocals, both main vocals and background vocals. We talk about where vocal production stands in the bigger picture of producing a song. We talk about arranging vocals both for yourself as well as for other vocalists and some strategies for the actual session when working with other vocalists and when you are the vocalist and the engineer. And then towards the end, we talk about some pros and cons of DIY recording in general. Uh, Brandon has recently done an episode on his podcast on this topic, and he's written an article as well, which we've linked in the show notes. So we talk a little bit about the advantages and disadvantages of being a DIY music producer. Check out the show notes for where you can find Brandon's music and his podcast, which is called DIY Sound Library. And soon we're going to be guests on his podcast as well. So look for that. Enjoy the episode. You are listening to the DIY Recording Guys podcast, your one-stop information source for DIY music production. With your hosts, Fadim Karaz and Benjamin Hall. All 
All right, welcome to another episode of the DIY Recording Guys podcast. I'm Vadim from Calm Frog Recording. And I'm Ben from DreamLot Studio. And I'm Brandon from DOI Sound Library. All right, yes. He just jumped in there and did it. it. That's awesome. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, we, our guest today is Brandon Tomei of DIY Sound Library. But that's just one of the things that you do. So, you know, we cross paths, I think, on Instagram it's just crazy how the stuff works, right? Because it's a global platform. And yet here we are, two guys into DIY recording, and we live like probably less than 30 miles from each yeah. other. So that's wild. That is wild. And um, you're <laughs> you're a guy who wears many hats. You are in at least one band that I know of. You're, I believe, a solo artist. You're a producer. You're obviously a DIY recording enthusiast, and you're a podcaster, all of which... We will talk about, and we specifically invited you on to talk vocal production. But before we even get into that, tell us a little bit about your musical journey, what you do, and how you got there. Sure. Well, I appreciate the intro. That means a lot to me. It makes me seem bigger than I really am. Um, and <laughs> and I, thank you again for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah. So I, I, like a lot of us, I do a lot with music, as many people do a lot with their own lives, you know, dabbling in different things, art and production and all that. Um, basically, I got started in school like a lot of people. I, I went to school for recording, got an associate's degree with that and uh, was lucky enough to get an internship at a record label. Um, and actually at the record label, I was doing more of music business type of work. Um, some marketing and research type mm. of things, uh, having meetings with bands. Um, and I learned a lot of the business side of kind of the music industry through that. Um, but I also just loved making my own music because um, at the time I was learning guitar and a bunch of different other instruments as well. Um, so that all kind of came together. And, you know, I, I've gotten with my band, Good Friend Electric. Um, I eventually created my solo project called uh, Names Are Violent. And uh, I'm also working on another side thing called Not Gary. Um, so yeah, just <laughs> engulfed in music. Yeah. Right on. I, I want to ask you, actually, this wasn't on our agenda, but I'm always curious about what people's thoughts are on the value of that formal recording education, how you view that now, having done what you've done. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I was lucky enough that I could do it through my community college, so it wasn't a massive cost. It wasn't a full sale type of thing. And I was lucky enough, the guy who taught there, uh, Jason Rook, um, he's worked with some massive uh, industry guys like uh, Shelly Yakis, who's worked with like Steely Dan. I, I don't know, kind of like lucky there that I was able to, to pay a fair price and get a really good education out of it. And I think there's certain mm. situations where you know, maybe like the music production side is overpriced in terms of traditional education. Yeah, I agree with that. Gotcha. Uh, curious too, on that same topic, um, were you dabbling in recording before you decided to go to school? Well, yeah, I was dabbling in it. I had FL Studio and I was kind of making some okay. beats and I was playing guitar and recording that. And I just fell in love with creating your own songs and creating your own landscape and audio. I just wanted to follow that. I wanted to follow that passion so much that, you know, I saw this as an opportunity to hopefully make a career out of it. Cool. What year was that, by the way? Was that recently or? Um, so that was 2016. Okay. Yeah. 
It's a little bit more recent. I was going to say, it must be somewhat recent because I also started with FL Studio, but when I started, <laughs> it was called Fruity Loops. Yeah. <laughs> that was a while back. Yeah. So. yeah. Yeah, I guess um, talk a little bit about maybe to how you got into the the podcasting game and what you do with um, – well, we can talk about it again uh, later on as well, but just curious about DIY Sound li- Library and how that uh, came to be. Yeah, I mean it's kind of a similar idea to the same thing that you guys have here is just that um, a lot of people in this industry do a lot of things themselves, at least locally I've seen. A lot of people try to record their own music, they also play their own music, and they also promote it and put it out and release it themselves. They're not necessarily signed to labels. And I wanted to use my expertise with audio to share what I've learned along the way, essentially. You know, I'm not like super famous, I'm not super rich, but I have had some successes along the way, so I think it would be really cool to kind of build my own thing and also share it with people to help people out uh, through their journey with music. Awesome. Cool. Well, we're definitely big supporters of of that and the DIY recording, people getting into it in various degrees. Yeah. So let's uh, let's dive into some vocal production stuff. And the reason I, you know, we, we were kind of talking about what topics would be good. And one of the re- reasons I thought this would be a good one is because I think you bring a unique perspective where you are oftentimes writing and arranging vocal melodies and lyrics for yourself, right? For you as an artist or for your bands. Whereas Ben and I, I think, come don't really have as much of that experience. I think we're more doing it, if we are doing it, we're doing it for other people. Mm-hmm. Ben is yeah, a background mostly. vocalist. I am not a vocalist at all. <laughs> so maybe let's start there and start talking about the perspective of writing vocal melodies, how you go about it, knowing that you're going to be the performer. Right, right. Um, well, for me, it always starts with experimentation. Um, and again, I'm not like the biggest or best vocalist ever. I'm really not. I try to like scoot away with effects and stuff like that too. But <laughs> um, um, yeah, no, I, I, for me, what, what makes a good vocal is something that moves you, something that has some kind of feeling and emotion to it. And I find that easily through experimentation and even when I'm like coaching someone else for their own vocal part I I always just encourage like just like mumble words don't even like make it serious just figure some kind of melody out first and uh, I start Mm. with the melody and and go from there so do you mean when you say experiment are you typically experimenting with your voice or are you doing some kind of like arrangement on a keyboard first or how does it look Yeah, that's a good question because it's actually a little bit of both. Um, It starts with the voice. I mean, the voice is always the first part. I'll just kind of like mumble some melodies, whatever it is, and try to find something that gives me goosebumps. Um, But when it comes to really producing it kind of after that fact, I'm always on a piano, um, kind of dialing in different notes, different rhythms, and especially the harmonies on the piano. That's really where that comes Mm. in. But for me, it starts with just the vocal. Cool. How far along into the production are you normally before you start messing with vocals? Um, honestly, for my stuff, well, I mean, the Not Gary project is kind of different because they'll get um, my friend Grant and my friend Mary, they'll do the vocals almost first. But like 90% of all of my other projects, vocals are probably the second to last thing. Okay. Yeah. 
that's more the way that I'd say I I work as well. But I'm not a vocalist either, so mm-hmm. normally it's the last thing I want to think about. Yeah, and are, is that like? I guess from a consistency standpoint, I'm wondering just in the songwriting process, are you guys approaching it? Is it like pretty algorithmic where you're like, all right, we typically, you know, we start, we're going to, we're going to build a song today. We're going to start with a beat and then we're going to put in a guitar and then, you know, you do all this stuff. Or are these ideas coming to you from the ether (laughs) from all over the place? Sometimes it's a beat. Sometimes it's a vocal melody. Like how structured is it? Yeah. When we're creating the songs, most of the time it's not structured it's not very linear um it can come from many different places um and a lot of the times it comes from just fiddling around on the guitar or a synth progression um but yeah it's it's definitely like uh to use the word multifaceted um Mm -hmm. (laughs) it, it comes from a lot of different places and um, sometimes it does come from the vocal directly, but that's more rare, I think, in my situation. That's kind of cool. And because of that, do you find that your um, do you find that your music kind of or the style kind of takes on a life of its own from song to song, depending on where that vocal melody comes from, or do you guys try to rein it in and all make it sound like you know you guys? Does that make sense the way I'm framing that? I think so. Um... I, I think in terms of like the style and the vibe kind of just naturally comes from how we create our, our melodies and the tones of our singers. So like for mm, my, gotcha. my my main band, Good Friend Electric, our lead singer, Grant, he has a very distinct, unique tone to his voice. So almost no matter what he sings, it's going to sound very unique to our band, no matter what. Mm. Yeah. Cool. And the other two projects, Not Gary and Names Are Violent, are you the vocalist in those? Uh, so Names Are Violent, I do uh, vocals in that. I'm like the, the lead vocalist for that. And uh, Not yeah. Gary, Not Gary, I, I do some background stuff. And Good Friend Electric, I might do some background stuff, but very minimal. Okay. I, didn't, I guess I didn't realize that. Are you ever arranging vocal melodies for the other vocalists? Yeah, that if anything, I, I may I probably do that more than just singing myself. Um, okay, which which is why I'm I'm really interested in vocal production because I work with people and I, I kind of coach people on on how to create them, and I feel like there is a massive ceiling with especially certain genres like pop. Like there's so many like tricks they're doing that it just sounds so good, and I want to reach that level and figure that out. And you're talking about tricks from the right from the arrangement point, or are you talking about kind of some of the post stuff? Uh, definitely both, but more so the arrangement side mm. and the performance side. Right. Yeah, that's very cool. I mean, I think you're absolutely right there, especially in a genre like pop, where some of these pop mixes I just can't believe. Like it's you know it's eighty percent vocal because that yeah. really is the feature it's the focal part of of the song and so there's a lot that goes into that some of which we've we've talked about on previous episodes and maybe that's a good place to go next is when you're arranging for pop and we've talked about how maybe you come up with the main vocal melody and then you're saying maybe you flesh that out further on the piano or the keyboard what happens next what are the other 
production factors you consider, whether it's background vocals or how to spice that up from an arrangement standpoint? Yeah, so I don't know, with with like a pop song, so much of it revolves around the vocal that I'll find myself changing instruments and rhythmic stuff to fit the vocal better after the fact. So mm. it's almost like you'll it's almost like for my process, I'll have the song already and then do the vocals. And then the vocal comes in and it's like, wait a minute, maybe you got to add or take away the synth part. Maybe you got to take away this drum part. It's like clashing too much. The rhythms don't match up. Or maybe you can just make it 10 times better uh, by layering things to follow the vocal melody or the rhythm of it. So it's kind of like you're reassessing the song completely at that point. I mean, you got to be really humble to take that approach, especially if you're arranging somebody that's not even you singing I'm just thinking of it reminds me of whenever I was growing up playing in garage bands or even uh, even after high school because I was a lot more into the rock scene and the hard rock and basically we just found somebody that could sing a little bit to to sing over <laughs> top of our amazing riffs and yeah it didn't it didn't matter what the riffs were or if they were running all over the vocals you know they just had to deal with it because we were the musicians but right. <laughs> that's that's definitely the complete opposite mindset of pop. And so that's that's cool that you've developed that that mindset. Yeah, I mean, and the thing is it's it's different for every genre too. So this kind of approach isn't quite the same when you delve into like maybe the indie genre. It's a little different. Um, but in terms of like an indie pop or a pop type of mix or production, uh, the vocals are definitely huge, and, and the production on them and the recording and the arrangement of it is just so key. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, okay, so I, I like what you said there, which is that it's a, it's almost a bit of an iterative process. You may, you said you, you maybe you think about the vocals last, but once you get the vocals, because they're so important, you might go back and actually readjust the arrangement and uh, to, to fit the, the vocals, which is a really cool approach. Um, let's talk about some of these harmonies, and especially in pop, again, where that's the harmonies are kind of a big part of the sound. What's your approach? Do you track the main vocal first, then think about harmonies? Is it all off of scratch tracks? Are you playing chords on the keyboard? What are you kind of looking at? Yeah, so typically I, I start with the lead vocal track and I try to get that down as best as possible um, and then once we feel like that sounds great that's when we'll move on to harmonies and background parts and doubles and things like that so I, I guess because like the lead vocal really is the thing that's up front and in your face the most that kind of matters the most so you know I'll start there and, and go from there and build it out on top of that and is the process similar where you have your main melody and then you're using, are you starting with voice and just trying to like pick out harmonies as they come naturally to you? Or is once you get into those layers, is it pretty much you're using instrumentation and whatever knowledge of theory you may have uh, to come up with those kind of like, I know a third interval is going to sound good here, or is it kind of more... Uh, out of the ether, like I said. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely a mixture of both. And I hate that answer because it sounds so cliche, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but it really yeah. is. Like, um, like for me, like I love harmonies and sounds that are a little bit unconventional. So things that slightly push the boundary, but it's not too weird that you don't like it. 
So I'll, I'll try to use some of my basic music theory knowledge and say like, you know, like a, a basic third or a fifth on top of this lead vocal will sound great. And that, that'll be like a nice harmony to it. But if you want to get a little jazzier with it, you can throw in the seventh or the ninth interval. And that's almost like stacking chords. And at that point, you know, it, it gets deeper into theory. Like what, what's the chord that's playing underneath um, the song in any given moment. And then that, for me, that's how you determine the harmonies. It's like, what's the chord underneath of the production? Um, and that's how you figure out what you want to add the vocals on. But that's also a very technical approach that I don't always take too. Sometimes it's just experimenting with singing a higher note and it just comes naturally and sounds good when you just experiment. And then you'll just throw that on instead. What's, what's your technique, Ben? I'm curious. I don't know if we've talked about it before. I think in general, I always go off of feeling first. Because I, I do have a pretty solid foundation as far as theory goes because my mom's a piano teacher and she, made, she forced me to learn all that she stuff. She drummed it into you. Yeah, yeah, she drummed it into me. And the way that she teaches was very like theoretical based, but also oh, cool. wasn't very fun at all for a young kid because who as a five-year-old cares about you know, how many notes are in a scale or what the circle of fifths are. Like, that's not fun. That's not interesting. And I think the same, I think the same thing is true when you grow up and start, you know, doing music more seriously. Like, you know, I want it to be fun. I don't ever want it to be a chore. So I always start with inspiration. And then I feel like I start pulling on that theoretical knowledge or the analytical uh, tools whenever I hit roadblocks or I'm not quite there mm. yet. That's kind of how I try to keep it. Yeah. Yeah. For for me, it's like, I, I know, I know theory, like I know <laughs> math, like I can sit down with a, with a piece of paper and yeah, a pencil yeah. and I can, I can figure it out, but it's not necessarily intuitive to me. Like I'm not doing it off the top of my head. And so one thing I found when trying to build harmonies is a lot of times if like the vocalist already has the melody line, I will actually like pick that out on like a MIDI keyboard. So I'll make the MIDI for it. And then mm. I'll just try like stacking different intervals on top of it, like Brandon is saying, but almost a little more haphazardly. Like I don't think about it unless I'm really stuck. Like you said, Ben, Yeah, I'm just like, what does this one sound like? Well, ah, that sounds terrible. What does this one sound like? You know, and just that way you can kind of iterate your way into it. And I'm just saying that for people who may not have any knowledge of theory and like, how the hell am I going to write vocal harmonies? You can still do it. Yeah, and kind of to add to that, what Ben was saying, um, once you have some layer of exper experience with this stuff, uh, arranging vocals and arranging songs, there there's just comes a point where you just hear stuff, you just hear it, and you don't even have to think about it per se. Like, you don't have to think about the theory. You just know, if I just sing higher and just hit the certain note, you just like hear it yeah. in your head, and, and it, sometimes it just sounds good from the start. That's absolutely true, but actually, I want to ask you guys about this because sometimes I find myself hesitating in moments like that, where I'm like, "Is this just because like this is is it this is the easy answer? Does that mean it's like the best creative answer? Like, how do you how do you deal with that? Like, okay, this is what the harmony always is. Yeah, am I am I like trying hard enough, <laughs> right? Or like. Versus like, no, this is this is what came to me naturally, and therefore it's the right answer. Do, is there a tension there for you at all? You know, honestly, 
if what you're saying, like the one that comes natural comes first and you like it, I think that's totally fine. I, I don't think you have to challenge yourself like a million percent just to make it yeah. good. Sometimes mm-hmm. if it just comes to you, sometimes that's right. You know, you, you don't have to add on a hundred layers. Um, although I do like layers and I do encourage that, but um, yeah, sometimes it just comes to you and it, it's good enough. I think I have an interesting answer to this question and it's not from my personal experience necessarily, but when I was helping Josh record vocals for the Fading Light album, uh, he wrote a lot of those vocal melodies on the keyboard because he liked the melody on the keyboard before he ever tried to sing it. And I'll just say that that was a very intense, difficult record, a couple of recording sessions that we did because because it wasn't natural. His voice didn't want to move in those intervals. It was unnatural mm. to to the way that he normally would sing. And so I think that, you know, like Brandon was saying, uh, if you decide you want to go that way, maybe a, a good approach is, why don't you challenge yourself 10% <laughs> instead of 100% challenge, you know, because that's going to, it's going to take a lot more time. It's going to be frustrating. So it's right. definitely great to to push yourself with every new project that you do, but baby steps. Yeah, and that's a great point. And kind of like adding to that, Ben, is uh, a point I have here on my notebook uh, is uh, (laughs) performability. Like, Mm. you don't want to create something that you can't even perform. I mean, the whole point is to capture performance. You know, if you can't, if you don't feel like you can confidently get a good take, there's no point in having a crazy midied out part that you can't sing. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I can tell you that having arranged vocals like for my wife who is a wonderful singer I have run into this a couple of times and one thing I've done is kind of like I I range on the guitar a lot and like I've I've bookended the range that I know she is more comfortable singing in and that helps so I know when I'm like working on a on a vocal melody you know I need to stay within that bookended range but the intervals thing is a great point too, because sometimes some intervals are just harder to sing. And it just, if you don't get that good performance, you're not going to be happy with the vocal melody. But you, so you guys are taking in a bit of a different direction. I, I was even more thinking of not so much technical difficulty, like technically pushing yourself, mm. but more, actually, I heard Tom Waits talk about this in an interview once. And he was saying that, you know, Tom Waits has recorded like 40 albums. And when, when he gets song ideas in his head, he, he's often like asking himself, is this an original idea? Like, uh. first of all, did I hear this from some other artist? And is that why it's coming naturally to me? This is actually smells like teen spirit or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Or, or like, have I written this before, right? <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. I've ran into that a few times. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> when I was in college, I remember I got super inspired and I wrote out this like this whole song came to me and I wrote out this drum part, the bass, the guitar. And I was like, I was floored because I was like, this has never happened to me before. This song just got downloaded into my brain. <laughs> and then a week later I was listening to audio slave and I was like, dang it, this is their song. Like it <laughs> somehow subliminally got downloaded in there and I didn't realize it was them, but I was like, it was like verbatim, like their song. Yeah, that same thing just happened to me last week with Not Gary. We were we were doing <laughs> harmony part, like literally a harmony part, like vocal production harmony part for for the lead vocal. And we just like 
Grant just naturally sang this this harmony that started up high at like the the one in terms of like the interval or whatever and yeah, it walked yeah. down and we're like that sounds so familiar what is that from <laughs> and uh after like a few seconds it we figured out it, it was like a Pocahontas song oh my god <laughs> <laughs> but we that's kept amazing. it in there like it's, it's staying in there and we're not taking it out see I think that's appropriate and that 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 brings up a nice interesting segue you know when you run into those certain things that you know is kind of okay this is kind of a ripoff of another song like what do you what do you do about that as far as do you scrap it do you come up with something new or do you change something else to make it still your original idea you know you're being influenced by somebody else but still making it your own yeah you know i think as long as it sounds different enough that it's not identical that could even just be the tone you know like if it was sang by a guy in the real recording, but the girl is recording the vocal and she sings it more angrily, I think that could huh. even be good good enough, um, even if it's not a direct melody change per se. Yeah, I mean, we we had uh, Samori Coles on the podcast, and and he's not obviously this isn't an original idea, case in point, but there's twelve notes in music. There is nothing new under the sun. Yeah. Right. There is nothing that hasn't been done. So like on some level, if you dig deep enough, like every idea has already had some iteration. So I think it's totally cool to be like, oh, this is a little too similar and then tweak something a little bit. But you you just drive yourself crazy. I think if you were like, I'm trying to find the combination that's never been done before, like <laughs> that that's going to be rare, especially in pop, right? Where we're talking about like four, four meter and like really some really strong archetypes of what a pop song is. Right. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. So let's move on to, you have this great concept of uh, using open space in an arrangement. I can't remember what episode of DIY Sound Library it was where you, you went through like the anatomy of a song. Um, was that for, was that a Names Are Violent song? Uh, yes, I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly. Yeah, that was a Names Are Violent song. Um, I think it was Valentine before. Yeah, it was a song that kind of, the the progression kind of builds yep. up uh, and uh, as you move along. And you're transitioning from, you know, very sparse vocal arrangement to a very busy vocal arrangement towards the end. So talk about this idea of open space and its role in a vocal production. Like the role of silence in a vocal production, I guess, is maybe <laughs> maybe one way to, to say it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, you know, I guess the whole point with when I arrange a song, the idea is you want to take the listener on a journey, right? So, for instance, in that song, I started it off kind of soft and quiet on purpose and kind of almost like a minimalistic approach to the vocals and the whole idea was that you know the first chorus it'll be a lot bigger and the second chorus will be like really big um but still have that verse be spacious and i think that allows the vibe to be different um it allows separation from the chorus to the verse and it allows for instance effects like delays or reverbs to kind of hear them audibly in the mix um it also allows instruments to shine through like you know sometimes verses are stripped down on purpose but it has a certain groove that you just want to hear the groove 
and you don't need tons of vocals there. So having that space can be really important. And it's always a balance between finding out where to put the space and where to fill it up with layers. Mm. Really cool. That brought kind of a tangent point to my mind that I wanted to ask you. So when you're coming up with these vocal ideas you're de- or you're deciding how much space you want in a vocal performance, are you tracking or are you coming up with ideas pretty dry, no effects is what I mean? Or do you like to keep a certain stock reverb or delay to kind of hear what that would sound like and inspire you? Or does it does it depend on each song that you're coming up with? Um, actually, honestly, like when I'm creating the vocal itself, um, I, I really don't use much effects. I just kind of figure out the melody dry. And then mm. sometimes, like occasionally, I'll hear a delay on it and then I'll put it on just to see. Mm. But most of the time, I'm creating the track itself just with a dry vocal, like a dry idea of, of what gotcha. this melody and rhythm is yeah that's more like you're you get inspired and you think oh this part might sound cool with a delay on it but you're not tracking that way you're just hearing it like that in your head exactly yep yeah cool yeah i mean you did mention effects and the role effects have on you know a lot of it is is dependent on the genre but i that is an interesting idea of like using effects almost to drive inspiration um, it sounds like that's not really your approach and I've never really played around with that either, but it, it is an interesting concept of like, yeah, would your arrangement look different if mm-hmm. you were playing around with it, like through a delay pedal or something like that, you know? Well, I, I think you're completely right. I think it, in today's world, effects on vocals are almost everything and it completely changes the game. Uh, for instance, SoundCloud rappers, like auto-tune does magical things <laughs> and like uh um you know i feel like that genre like wouldn't exist without it and um certain rappers you can just throw on the auto-tune and it sounds great and it's it's almost like a household thing now to have that and uh really record with that effect in mind and mm-hmm. so that kind of brings into the idea of like different tones and vibes i know that's vague but like having these uh, uh, tonal ideas in your mind beforehand such as the autotune or maybe distortion or like any effect really that can change the the vocal line and the melody itself sometimes right yeah there's there's autotune is a funny one because it it's it its role varies widely from from being like a crutch to being like a creative effect and uh, yeah, you got you got to be a little bit a little bit careful there. But that is it yeah. is an interesting idea of like having the effect in mind while you're doing it. I uh, let's talk a little bit about workflow actually, since we're we're talking about building layers. Um, just from the you you've done the arranging and now it's the recording phase. That idea of recording maybe your sequence your your workflow in terms of like recording the main vocal comping recording background vocals do you have a consistent strategy you go to there once the arrangement is done um in terms of what specifically like what i record first and second well like i'm thinking for example let's say you record the main vocal first obviously i think most of us are recording you know the main vocal line first uh but then this there's this question of like 
now I have 10 vocal takes do, and they're maybe a little bit different. Do I go through and comp them? Do I start playing around with background vocals? Do I, you know, do you do editing in there somewhere? Like talk about that. Right. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I think, um, a lot of people do this very differently, differently, and there's no right or wrong way to do it. Um, but the way that I do it is very different than that. Um, I just delete it if we're not going to use it. Uh, there's no point to me to have it if you're not going to use it. So, you know, it, and it doesn't mean that we do the whole song in one take because that's very difficult to do. But it means maybe we're doing it in sections and we do it till we get it right. And so if it's not mm. right, then I'll just delete it and we'll re-record it. Um, and the whole idea is to get as much of it through in one take as possible because that's usually when it's the most seamless, it's the most natural, and it sounds the best. When it's like robotic recorded in chunks, it doesn't always go well together. Mm. So that's kind of my workflow. I just delete it if we're not going to use it. It takes up space. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, I love that. I love that mindset. That's very differently than than how I do it. Um, I'm I tend to err on the opposite side where I'm recording everything and I don't care. Like until the artist takes a break, which when we're done with the main vocal, then I go through and like try to comp things together. And I want as much as possible there. I don't go as extreme as some people that I know do, like work on pop you know, at the, at the highest level where they're like comping by the syllable, yeah. but I do like to have options, I guess. And it does make for a very tedious workflow. So I can definitely appreciate this idea of like, let's just get it right. Um, Ben, how do you do it? I think I'm closer to, to Brandon because I, when I first started doing, you know, studio production, I aired more on your side. And in fact, I would even say, let's just do three takes the whole way through the song. I won't stop you, let's go. And what I found is that quite often vocal vocalists would make mistakes at the same part on every single take. So we'd have to do more takes. Like all the good parts would be the same good parts in all three takes and all the bad parts that I would want to swap out would happen to be in the same exact spots. So the way I kind of tend to do it is uh, I'll let the vocalist go until... Uh, they make a mess up or they want to redo something over. And then I'll normally go back to that part, uh, either right there where they uh, had the mess up or a little bit before to make it sound more natural. And I don't, I really don't save myself any options. If I think something sounds good, I, I try to trust my gut. And I mean, that is a little nerve wracking because, you know, later if you're listening to it the next day and you're thinking, oh man, that didn't sound quite as awesome as I thought it did, then you're stuck with it. Or you have to call up the vocalist and say, hey, could you actually come back out here and, and redo that? But right. there's something there's something to be said for just, you know, committing to, you know, paying attention and committing to, you know, what you're going to commit to. Yeah. And it's, it's not easy, but um, I guess the main part of the main reason why I take that approach is just time. Like it's, it's yeah. way faster in terms of what you're getting done in one day to commit than it is to save everything and like edit through it all on the back end. Um, but you do have to make sure that you did get a really good take. Obviously you don't want to rush it too much, but, um, that's, that's kind of why I take that approach. That makes sense. Are you chunking stuff with your approach by like, 
you know, we're doing the verses first, then we go into the courses, or are you trying to get the courses out of the way first? How do you think about the strategy when you go into a session? Yeah, that's a great question because it's very nuanced. And I think it has a lot to do with the vibe of the certain section. Um, for instance, if the verses are supposed to be soft, maybe whispery and quiet, we will do them uh, one after each other. And then if the chorus are courses are supposed to be loud and aggressive, um, we'll do those together. Um, so you're kind of like, you're melting the vibes together, take after take, and then you're kind of having like a mental break. All right, now we're doing verses, it's supposed to be chill. And then you can get both verses one after another. Gotcha. And are you adjusting any gear settings positions, preamp levels, anything in between those transitions? Let's say if a song has like a massive chorus and a quiet verse. Yeah, I, I will slightly. I mean, I really don't have a complicated setup at all. Um, and I, I definitely should buy more gear to help that. <laughs> like, I, no! I, I don't have any uh, <laughs> don't do it. outboard compressors or anything, which I, I should have. But um yeah, like if it's a significant difference, I'll lower or up the gain a little bit just to compensate. Yeah, Ben and I have talked about this in the past, and it was um, I didn't used to do that. I used to try to keep the same levels for everything, but I've since been, I've since changed my tune where now I will adjust it between sections, and I find it it almost acts like a, you know, a dummy compressor where like I'm able to control my level a little bit exactly and hit the microphone in the sweet spot. So yeah, I think that's. That's a reasonable tech. Ben, you said you, you don't touch them, right? You don't touch your levels. No, I don't think that I've, I don't think I've had an artist yet where I felt like I needed to change them or touch the level. So all your stuff is just, all your stuff is on full blast anyway. So everybody's yeah. just going hard, well, right? I mean, <laughs> funny enough, uh, I love using a lot of compression on vocals. So my goal is to kind of squash the vocals so that it just is pegged and doesn't yeah, right. I, I will say that like I, I find like compression as I've done this more, I find myself actually using more compression. Where starting out, I felt I was a little more ginger with it. So maybe let's get into some of that, like a little bit of just processing and effects. And um, you know, we had on our list here, we we touched on auto tune, but I'm curious what your guys think, what you guys think about that use of distortion and other effects. What role do these effects? have in your workflow um i mean they definitely have a huge role because you could have a whole background vocal section purposefully be entrenched in distortion and eq filters and a phaser effect or something and that can be its own thing it's almost like its own universe that you created maybe panned off to the left for a certain section so you know typically i don't use that kind of stuff all the time on lead vocals that much it's like it's very sparse and kind of like ear candy type of thing where it's it's here it's there and it pops in and pops out but i typically don't use effects layered on top of each other all the time i think it can be too much at least for the genres that i do it in but uh, i guess in terms of compression it's also like a feel thing like a, a pop song will be very compressed with the vocal um for like an indie song, it could be very different. So it kind of depends on the genre you're in too. It does. Yeah. A lot. Well, that was, 
that's great. It's always great to get other people's perspective. I will say for me, going into sessions with vocalists is the most nerve wracking thing that I'm doing as an engineer because I'd agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like if I got a, if I got somebody in there playing the guitar, it's like, I don't, I don't care. I'll make them do a million takes, you know, it's going to have a bunch of distortion on it or whatever. But for vocalists, for one thing, I feel like there's a different psychological element on communicating with vocalists to the little things of like vocalists don't necessarily like to hear their voice played back in solo dry with no reverb. Like if you do that by accident, that can take their, that can take them out of the vibe, right? Like you're not wrong. It's weird. <laughs> I, I, I was surprised the first, as I'm not a vocalist, but the first time that happened to me where I like, I was like, I'm the engineer. I want to listen to this vocal in solo. I want to hear its character. I want to know if I'm using the right microphone. And I played it and it was live in the in the vocalists like headphones and they had this re- adverse reaction where they're like, "Oh my god, like I can't. I don't want to hear that." So I I've been a lot more careful now and uh t- maybe talk about that a little bit, the the psychology of recording vocals. Dude, the psychology is everything with vocals. It's <laughs> it's unbelievably important and it's really hard to get right and I'm I can't do it right all the time. It's so tough. <laughs> it's and it's and like you said, it's way different than just guitars or drums. And because it's like a separate entity, you know, it's like a guitar yeah. is just like this object where the voice, it's you. It's like a personal thing. Mm. So f- for me when I'm kind of coaching a vocalist, it's all about how do I bring that performance out of them? And you almost have to become a psychologist yeah. and use these like little tips and tricks to like to almost like feed their ego and make them more confident so that on the second and third take it's twice as good. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, you know what it makes me think of it makes me think of like any like I don't know, high school football movie where like <laughs> it all revolves around like there's this really talented player but he's a troublemaker and then you have this coach that needs to be you know this the psychologist to get inside his head to figure out what is going to motivate him to get the the right performance out and i'm so Mm. glad that you brought that up because it is absolutely like that in the studio you know with every instrument to a certain degree but especially for vocals because if you have a really sensitive singer like vadim you were talking about the person that didn't even like to hear that you got to be you got to be aware of that when you're getting ready to record that or uh, maybe on the adverse side or the opposite side you have somebody that really wants to get beat up in the studio oh man you could do better than that go go back in there and you just got to be aware of that yeah know what motivates them yeah and and everyone's different too like some people will be motivated when you say oh you can do a better one yeah. and some people yeah. will feel hurt when you say that right. and so you you kind of have to like gauge who they are yeah that's a that's a really great point and and maybe um i think a lot of people listening to this probably are in situations where they're recording themselves they're the engineer and the vocalist so brandon maybe talk about that what do you do for yourself psychologically to to get ready and to to get the best performance you can yeah that's that's a really important point because as diyers uh, (laughs) we do everything ourselves and you get in this mode where you're, at least I do, where I'm concerned with finishing the entire song. I'm not so much concerned with the vocal. But what you have to do is take a step back and stop being the engineer, stop being the guitarist, stop being the mixer guy, stop being the mastering engineer, 
and focus on the vocals and really transform yourself into a vocalist. Um, stop looking at the computer screen, like go walk in the other room and sing the, the melody to yourself. Uh, sing it in the shower, go take a car ride and do it. And you have to transform yourself into a vocalist at that point in time when you're doing it all yourself. Because if your mind is scattered, like you're not gonna get the best performance out. I got a quick question for Brandon. Let's say you wanna get really wide vocals and you could only do one of these two tricks. Would you record doubles and pan them wide or would you use some type of chorus or widening effect after the fact? What do you kind of prefer or what do you like more? Well, I would definitely do the doubles, but it also depends what you want. Like, if you just want like a, a really nice sounding natural wideness, I would record doubles on both sides and pan them. Um, have three separate takes, tight takes, good takes, but I would prefer that for sure. But like, if you want that effect, then obviously use the effect. Do you have any rules for panning that you do? Like, um, are doubles always 100% left and right? Or do you go somewhere in the middle or do you space them depending on the song or where do you put your harmonies and stuff? Um, for me, it really does depend on the production itself. And it comes down to a few things. Like, first of all, where is the space to put it? So if you already have tons of things up the middle, putting it up the middle wouldn't make sense. Like, there's no space there. Um, but personally, when I do doubles, I almost put them close to the middle or maybe 15 or 20 to the right or left. And I'll actually do harmonies uh, widespread, hard left, hard right type of thing. Okay. Um, and you can do whatever you want. Like, I, that's the part that I love with panning is you can, like, if you're mixing it, like, you can really figure it out for yourself and just play with what sounds great. True. And, but that's what I'll do. Like, I'll put, like, uh, doubles closer to the middle, have the lead up the middle, and do, like, maybe harmonies on the left or right. My thought process is similar to I treat it like the way I would treat guitars like rhythm guitars and a lead guitar so my lead vocal is the lead guitar so a lot of times that's up the middle and then I'll do my doubles to the sides but I'll also build like those chords on top of those doubles and that'll all be to the sides and again it of course depends on genre I'm talking about like a big pop production but I like that effect of like again I just think of like big Everything is metal to me. Every music is, <laughs> All music like is metal. metal. Yeah. So, so I think about like metal guitars where I have chords, big chords on the sides, and I try to kind of replicate that with vocals. But I do like the idea of I'm gonna have to play around with that of like keeping everything tight in the center. Cause I imagine what you're getting is like a bigger, fatter vocal in the in the middle of your stereo field that way. Yeah, you do. Um you you, you have to be careful with it because when it's up the middle it gets sloppy if it's not a tight take. Um, and that's where like editing can comes, comes into play or just re-recording it to get a better take. Um, when it's panned left and right, you don't notice it if it's sloppy. So, you know, that's a, a little trick you can use. If it's a little bit sloppy of a take, just pan it to the side and you don't notice mm. it and it still sounds great. That's a great trick. Love it. Here's something I was thinking about. I know we're going off on this uh, tangent with panning, but... <laughs> it just made me. It just made me think about this. So, um, the it's okay, we can we can rename this the panning episode. Yeah, the panning episode. <laughs> <laughs> How to pan your vocals in three steps? Or, I don't know. <laughs> um, but anyways, 
So Vadim and I, we just finished up, uh, my sister released the solo album. And one thing I noticed about, you know, working on the production of that, we did a lot of harmonies and put them on the sides. And when I was listening in mono, a lot of those harmonies kind of disappeared with the mono replayability. And I'm wondering, have you ever run into that? And is there anything that you've thought of doing to kind of preserve the mono compatibility or make those... Uh, not just with mono, but in the car, or you're listening for from somewhere that has maybe more of a mono soundscape than a stereo to kind of preserve the full like vocal sound. Because sometimes uh, the vocal just doesn't sound right if it's just the melody. Like sometimes the vocal is built to have like the whole chord of the melody and the harmonies together. Right, mm-hmm. you're completely right. A lot of that comes down to a good mix. Um, so, you know, it depends how you're referencing your mix. Are you referencing your mix just on your computer? Have you played it through a real stereo system? Um, and all these different platforms change the way you hear the mix. And so that's why when you hire a good mixing engineer, they'll be able to hear that stuff and kind of level it out. Um, but personally for me, like if I'm trying to mix it, um, honestly, I, I really don't listen to anything in mono when I'm just casually listening, so I don't see too much of a point on focusing on that. So, um, and I know that's counterintuitive to like the engineer landscape out there, but um, I don't know. Like, I always just listen to it in the car or like with headphones on anyway. So if it sounds yeah. good there, then I'm fine with it. Yeah, that's that's. I'm glad you brought that up because I I I used to be a real stickler for mono. I was like, <laughs> I want this to sound great in mono, and I was actually watching some like Chris Lord Algae was like doing a Q and A online, and that's exactly what he said. Somebody was like, How do you, you know mono compatibility? This and that. You get. He was like, Dude, nobody listens to music in mono, and just like totally blew the question <laughs> off. He's like, yeah. You know, one of the this guy mixes Muse, and like he you know he's a top notch mix engineer. So. I've backed off of that as well of like how concerned I am with mono. I'll still listen in mono because if there's a if there's a big problem, you got to fix it. But that's not the way most people listen to music for for enjoyment when they're focused in on it. So, yeah. I agree with you there. I mean, there can be some issues with like phasing and stuff, but I guess most of the time you don't really hear it. Right. Well said. Cool. Well, um, if we've got a couple minutes left here, we can talk a little bit about uh, you recently wrote an article on the pros and cons of DIY, and then you uh, did a DIY sound library episode on that as well. So maybe give us a quick overview of that, because I think this is very relevant to to our interests. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't have the specific points with me right now, but... Um... I think there's value to both sides of the coin. I think there's huge value in doing things yourself. I think you can take a lot of initiative yourself and get things done, get things finished, and learn a new skill yourself and get better. So I encourage that. But on the other side, there's people like maybe like with my band where we're not signed yet or anything. We've been doing music for several years. Why haven't we popped off yet? Well, we've been doing everything ourselves from this point on. And uh, recently when we started hiring better people to work on our music, we've seen better opportunities. So not being afraid to work with other people, to save up your money and to not do things DIY can actually help you. So I don't know. I see it both ways. 
I think maybe yeah. if you're like really trying to up your game, um, working with other people can help out a lot. One one good point you brought up in the um, in the episode. I actually I haven't had a chance to read the article yet, but you you said that one door that was open for you guys was that you 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 paid somebody to mix your album, and then that person recommended your band to somebody else, and effectively that's not necessarily a reason in and of itself to hire somebody, but it is one of the potential benefits is that like you're meeting people, they're hearing your music and that can lead to opportunities. You want to elaborate on that at all? Yeah. I mean, that's almost the biggest point why you should work (laughs) with other people and network is like, you never know who they are, who they know, and they could just be the person to send you off uh, and like do really well with your music. So we were lucky enough that that mix engineer recommended us to Exploding in Sound Records. Um, it didn't go anywhere with them. They didn't reach out to us, but that's totally fine. Like we were super <laughs> hype to have him do that, and we yeah. didn't ask him to do that. Um, and we're just thankful. And like you never know, like working with other people, that could happen. I love that. That's really, really, really great advice. Yeah, and it's counterintuitive too because. It's hard to trust other people when you have your own process, your own way of doing things, and you really want to stay unique. You know, you don't want other people's influence, um, mm. but that can be a bad thing um, in a certain way. You know, um, it's good to trust others, especially when you know who they are and you trust them. Yeah, I think you know that from the opportunity standpoint, I think is a huge point. But even from a from a quality standpoint, I mean, I'll just talk about an experience. Ben and I had recently with, you know, Ben and I both do mixing and we both do mastering. And this started a couple months ago where I sent a mix I had done to Ben for mastering. And the master came back. I was like, this sounds great. Like he really, he fixed the problem I had and now it sounds better. And then we did the same thing, vice versa, yeah. where like Ben did a mix. He sent it to me for mastering and he was like, this sounds great. So like, yeah, you know, just getting that second opinion, second set of years. And, and you mentioned that on the podcast as well of like, a lot of songs you listen to or movies that are made. There's a lot of people working on these things. And that's for a reason. It's because you get a little, everybody adds a little bit something to it. And with a lot of people working on it, sometimes it's actually harder for things to go wrong. Because if you're steering in the wrong direction, somebody will will catch it, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it's the idea that everyone's an expert in their own right, their own field. So you're working with a giant team of experts um, a lot of the hit songs today are written with three, four, five producers and writers at the same time. It's not just one person. One person does not do everything nowadays, um, especially at like the highest of levels, for instance. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's huge. It's crucial. Yeah, a couple things. So I did read your article, and a couple things that jumped out to me whenever I was a great article, by the way. And um, thank you. Uh, it was published at Endless River Studios. That's not your website, is it? You you guessed it on that? Is that what I heard, or is that yours? Uh, it's my friend's, so he okay. just started that recently. Um, awesome. And I, yeah, guest wrote on it. Awesome. Well, great article, and I and it's not that long, so everybody should go take a take a yeah, read we'll of it. Yeah, we'll definitely link it in the uh, in the show notes. Yeah, it's not long, but it gives you a lot to think about, and. Um, I love how you kind of summarized at the end of the article when you were talking about, you know, why is DIY the right method? After you talked about all the reasons why it was the wrong, then you went back and gave the converse of why it's right. And 
you were kind of talking about how um, you can retain the most freedom and creativity with DIY, but I think even going farther than that, which is absolutely true, it's kind of like the only real way to start in the music industry like nowadays. Like Even if you don't ultimately want to be a DIY artist, it goes a really long way whether you're trying to prove your worth to a record label or yeah. trying to land a job somewhere just to kind of show some initiative that... Hey, I can go and learn and look how far I've got it with myself. Now, if I can get your help, how far can we take it? That is so true. And it, it just makes you so much more valuable to show that you can start something yourself. Uh, you can learn a certain skill. You can put out this record. Like it, it shows a lot. And it's really important that people can at least get that skill, even if they don't do it forever. As far as recording goes for me, I think I started maybe more not DIY because I had experience in in a real studio and kind of watching the engineer fiddle the knobs and and I can remember simultaneously feeling like this is so awesome and what the producer's doing is magic and <laughs> simultaneously feeling so frustrated with not being able to communicate what I wanted it to sound like uh to the engineer and and kind of get that result. And I mean, that's why I wound up, you know, doing the studio stuff myself is because I wanted to be able to, you know, get my artistic expression out in a, in a more direct way. But I'm mm. kind of curious, like, you know, where did we all come from? Like, Brandon, did you, did you start off with like experience in your band seeing that kind of stuff or did you completely start the DIY route? Yeah, I think I started off mostly DIY. I mean, I went into a studio for one of my first projects, but I didn't work there. So um, I got to see what it was like to record in a real studio and I absolutely loved it. It made me fall in love with recording and things like that. So, but no, I mean, I, I've always been DIY from the start and I've loved the actual studio itself, which has made me love doing it DIY to try to build that vibe of yeah. my own studio. Um, but it is very different. It's, it's a different way of doing things. And, um, for some artists, it's too much pressure for them and they prefer DIY because they can be more creative. Um, what about you, Vadim? I think that's a great point. First of all, that, that, uh, that was actually very close to my experience where I did get to go into a studio as like a 16 year old and the pressure was too much. <laughs> I didn't have fun. Yeah. And that was one of the things that 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 made me interested in it was like I I love this concept, but I want to be able to do it at my own pace. And you guys talked about this on the episode uh with one of your bandmates about like yeah, you can throw keyboards against the wall. I think you were saying like, you can play around with stuff and that's yeah. that's a lot of fun. And I also uh appreciate Ben's point there which is that like by doing it yourself, you start to develop the language and you start to develop the communication skills till then where if you had the opportunity to work with a big time producer, now you can communicate your ideas in a better way than like, it just doesn't sound right. I don't know what's wrong with it. Right. Because you, you right. twiddled the knobs. And so that is, um, I think that is two very important points and two very big reasons to, to try DIY. Very cool. Well, it was a great discussion guys. Brandon, I have a couple just 
uh, quick hit questions for you. Just feel feel free to be as brief as you want. Let's go. I'm gonna ask you about your uh, your desert island microphone. If you could only oh, yes. use one microphone for the rest of your life to record everything, what would it be? SM57. I knew it. <laughs> Good answer. Yep, there it is. Okay. What's a piece of gear if if I gave you uh, if I said you can log into Sweetwater right now and put any piece of gear in your cart and I would cover the cost? What would you get? That's a tough Maybe one. Maybe an AKG four one four. Okay. Nice. What's the purchase studio purchase you've made that you've regretted the most? Oh shit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um cheap drum equipment. Oh, uh, that's a good one. Like drum like drum kit stuff? Yeah, like this hi-hat that I have, it's just like really shitty. <laughs> <laughs> is it the Sabian what is it, the B eights? Is that the ones well, that everybody craps on all the time? It's a it's a PDP um hi-hat stand oh, oh the it's hi-hat a hi-hat stand, stand. okay yeah. okay gotcha and um if you could record any one vocalist living or dead in your studio who would you choose oh michael jackson nice great choice. Good answer well brandon where can people find your work your music anything else you'd like to share yeah uh Typical stuff. My music is on Spotify for Good Friend Electric. Uh, not Gary is coming out soon. It's not out yet. That's a new project. And Names Are Violent is out on Spotify and everything else you listen to music. Um, my podcast, um, DIY Sound Library, that's uh, DIYSoundLibrary.com. Uh, we also have a link tree so you can uh, get some free resources there and uh, follow us there and follow the page. Very cool. We'll definitely put that in the show notes. And thanks for doing this. It's it's great to be connected with other people who are waking up in the middle of the night thinking about how to make that snare and that vocal sound better. So it's always uh, <laughs> nice. Yeah. And since you're in my neck of the woods, eventually once we are able to see other human beings again, it'd be great to, to meet up for a beer or something. Yeah, that, I would love that. That would be great. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Cool. And thanks for coming on, man. If you're enjoying the podcast, take a minute to leave a rating wherever you like to listen to it or share it with your friends on social media. Thanks, guys. Also, Benjamin and I are working engineers and we love helping people turn ideas into finished productions. So if you're interested in working with one of us or just want to discuss a project you're working on, reach out. You can find my work at calmfrogrecording.com. Get me on Instagram at calmfrogrecording or shoot me an email, vk at calmfrogrecording.com. And you can check Benjamin's workout at dreamloudstudio.com. Hit him up on Instagram at dreamloudstudio or by email, ben at dreamloudstudio.com. And finally, join our Facebook group to engage with a whole group of friendly, like-minded people who are interested in DIY recording. Just search for DIY Recording Guys on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening and for your continued support. I'll see you next week.